This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And today we have a story of friendship from a former Marine, Jason Porter. Here's Jason with a story of his best friend, Forrest Johnson, a.k.a. Fari. My first recollection of him was I used to go to breakfast several times a week right over here at the Red Hot Inn. And he was always there every single day at a certain time. And he sat by himself and he had a hat on and it said 95th Infantry on it. And it had a, you know, you see veterans wear pins and stuff on their hat, but he had a combat infantryman's badge on his pin. And I knew he was a World War II veteran. And I observed him for several weeks or months, never talked to him. And finally, I'm like, I got to I gotta go talk to this guy. Uh, we spent a ton of time just talking, drinking coffee. And through that, he brought me to the veterans group. And this veterans group was very unique when I got there because I was by far the youngest guy there. Everybody in that group. Most of them were all World War II veterans. Time frame would have been about 2002 was the first time I went there. So there was probably 60 or 70 local World War II veterans who were still alive who went to that group. I'm actually seeing guys here at this group. Like you would read about just incredible events that you would see on the History Channel or, or, or study about. These guys were actually there. So I met guys who actually landed at Iwo Jima who actually parachuted in on Normandy on D-Day. There was a guy who was on the USS Indianapolis. I met guys who unlocked the gates at Dachau. Like, these are the kind of guys I got to meet there. And they talked among veterans, among friends, among peers, unvarnished. And these guys are really, really um, the greatest generation, my heroes. I really looked up to these guys. When people look at Europe, Everybody thinks of D-Day. Well, D-Day was like, that was the very, very beginning of the campaign. When D-Day happened, there was about four, five, or six divisions that landed on the beach that day. The 95th is actually known for the campaign and Metz. Leading up to that campaign, that's where Forey and his unit, you know, they were decimated there, really. So they form in 1942. They trained and lived together 24-7, 365 for approximately two years. They're the plank owners. They're the first original organic group of guys that come together to form this division. And once they deploy into France and they deploy into the battlefield, those outfits get consumed by casualties in the battle. So he joined in 42 and he deployed to France with Patton's 3rd Army and the 95th Infantry and left the battlefield on November 10th, 1944. In the assault in Ammonvillers, before he talked about a guy was, was shooting at him, a sniper was shooting at him, and he took a rifle grenade. And a rifle grenade, you put it in the, in the end of the barrel of your rifle, and he shot, and it went up in the top of a barn and... He got the guy that was shooting at him. They continue the assault. And Bory went to cross a road. Like a platoon is on one side, the other guy's on the other side. And have you ever heard of a German 88? So it's designed to shoot planes out of the sky at tens of thousands of feet. Well, the Germans actually then employed them as anti-tank and then anti-personnel. 
And the thing that makes this thing so incredible was the velocity of the round. So Forey and his guys, they're moving up the street and Forey at some point had to, had to cross the street and there's a German 88, like two miles away, has the street just dialed in. And a German 88 hits beside Forey. So it shoots down the road and blows up and just blows into a cone. So had Forey been completely in that impact zone, I mean, he wouldn't have been alive. I would have never been friends with him. But he's just on the fringe of it. And it catches his his side. It blows a bunch of his gear off. His leg and hip is just destroyed, blown apart. And he talked about praying at that point. And he said he knew that, that God had comforted him and he knew he was going to live to see his son. How he knew that, I don't know. But that was his testimony. A couple of his guys run across the road, snatch him up. The German 88 continues to fire. The German infantry is maneuvering on them in a counterattack. So they scoop him up. They run him to the back, to the basically the other side of a, a building or a courtyard. Another guy grabs him, but they throw him on the hood of a Jeep, not strapped down or anything. The Jeep takes off across the potato field, full bore. Well, guess what's happening to the Jeep? The Jeep is being fired upon, and as Forey's trying to hang on, he's blown apart. They go across the potato field, up over the hill. The guys never see him again. That's it. It's like what happened to Forrest Johnson. So after Forey was wounded and evacuated off the battlefield on 10 November 1944 from Amonvillers, France, he went into the hospital, recovery, came home. He tried to pick up his life when he got home. He had a son, and his son had lived with his grandparents, which would have been Forey's mom and dad. So as when Forey came home, he tried to connect with his son. Well, his son didn't really see him as dad because he'd been gone after the hospital recovery and whatnot and all the time in service. He'd been gone nearly four years. So the boy saw grandpa as the father figure. So that was a real struggle um, and then just struggling to being back. But one of the absolute highlights of his life, which he talked about often, like this was like one of his best memories of his life, was the 95th Infantry Division Reunion, 1950. So this would have been five years after the war. They had it in Chicago. And somehow, Forey found out about it. So they haven't talked since 10 November 1944, right? Here comes the reunion in 1950. Forey shows up. In the afternoon, maybe a day late, I, I don't know. But he, he walks into the hotel in Chicago, and he sees a whole bunch of his friends. And what a story we're hearing, folks. And when we come back, we're going to find out what happens when the 50th reunion celebration of the 95th Infantry, well, when all those guys meet the guy they hadn't seen since November 10th, 1944. The story of Fari Johnson continues here on Our American Story.
And we return to Our American Stories and Jason Porter telling us the story of his friend and hero, World War II veteran Fari Johnson. Jason picks up the story in 1950 as Fari walks into a reunion full of his old buddies, men who thought that Fari was killed in action fighting Nazis back in 1944. Fari walks up behind him and says, what kind of clown outfit is you guys around here? You give some disparaging remarks, and those guys turn around like they are just going to belt somebody. And they turn around and see Forey Johnson, their platoon member, the guy that they'd seen get blown up in 1944. They haven't seen him since then. <laughs> he described how they just hugged him, and just it was just an incredible, incredible reunion. So they were there four days, and they went on a bender. All right, They had a good time. He said they drank a lot of beer, had a lot of fun, talked about, uh, you know, things that happened on the battlefield after Forey was hit, who survived, who didn't survive. So one of the things that they did is they had a gigantic Nazi flag. If you've seen the giant red flag with a big white background with a swastika in the middle of it, they had a huge one of them that they had pulled off of. Gestapo headquarters in Ham, Germany. Somebody brought this flag out, and over the course of the reunion that was held at this hotel, all the surviving members of his company signed that flag. And that would have been I Company, 375th Regiment of the 95th Infantry Division. But anyway, all those guys signed that flag. So when I met Forey, nearly 50, 60 years later, as members of his company began to dwindle over the time that flag, each guy would have it for a while and they'd maybe get a, give a talk at a VFW post, a elementary school, stuff like that. So when I met Forey, he had the flag. It was his turn to have the flag. And every now and then he'd bust it out and we'd, we'd look at it. We'd look at the names on it. One time we tried to call a couple of the guys on the, on the flag, you know, this is kind of pre Facebook and stuff. It was a little harder to find guys. So we did that one time. He was, he was really, really proud of that. And it was just kind of a touchstone of, of the war and, and his guys and to see their names written on it. Cause it, it'd be all the guys that he would talk about. I'm like, Oh, there he is. And obviously a lot of the guys aren't on it. They're dead. So through the course of the years and my friendship with them every year, Forey would invite me to go um, to the division reunion. Well, then the division reunion, I got to there was just nobody there. 2012, I talked to Forey. I said, Forey, that flag really needs to be in the museum. He's like, well, it's not my flag. I can't give it away. Okay. Well, I'm not pushing them or anything, but I'm like, I don't really want to just see it stuffed under a bed or something. Like when you're gone, it, it, it should go somewhere and mean something. So he agreed to bring it to the National World War II Museum in New Orleans. And at this time, there was three guys from his company that were still alive. I set up a meeting with the curator at the museum. I'm like, hey, these veterans are coming in. They have this flag. I told them the background of the flag. You know, they want to pass it off to you. So I pack up for a Johnson bring him on flight. He's in a wheelchair. I'm pushing him all through security. You know, it, it's quite a chore to get him down there. Once we get down there, Hal Smith and his wife, they roll in, I think on a motorhome. And the other guy, I can't remember, he comes in and they're just hanging out and talking. 
and they have the flag. And the next day at noon or one o'clock, we're going to turn the flag over to the museum, right? So I sit back and I just basically serve these guys, bring them sandwiches, bring them drinks. And they're just, they're talking about the war, their life. You know, they're old men, but they're talking like they're 22. And they are, although 65 some years had passed, they are still brothers. They're bonded by their time in service and, and what they did together. So the time is approaching. I'm like, all right, guys, you know, hey, it's 11 o'clock. At one o'clock, we got to be at the museum. Right, guys? They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, good, good. Get us another beer. I'm like, all right. And it gets down to one hour. And I'm like, all right, guys, in, a, in, a, in an hour, you know, we we need to start pack up and, and go. And the museum's ready to to receive us. And and I'm like, all right, guys, half hour, you know, let's let's wrap it up. And uh, I don't remember which one. I want to say it was for you. He turned around. He's like, tell them we're not coming. We'll decide next year. <laughs> the guys didn't want to break up the meeting. They didn't want to give up the flag. They said decide next year because that gave them a reason to see each other again. Because if they gave up the flag, they didn't have an excuse to meet up the next year. And well, unfortunately, I witnessed this moment. I, I witnessed the last meeting of this company of men. There was no next year because by that time next year, they were all gone. And Forey was the last man to have the flag. And he was the last one from that unit to be alive. I don't know what happened to the flag now. He wanted it, it, something meaningful to happen with it. So maybe it is in the museum. I, I, I don't know. I was sitting right next to him. The last time that I spoke with him, he kept it in a briefcase right next to his chair. And I visited with him seven or eight days before he, before he died. And it was sitting there. Forey Johnson lived several blocks from church where my wife and I attended church. And I would go down the road and, and visit for a, have coffee, have breakfast. And one day I walked up to his house. His screen door was open. He had his breakfast in front of him and he was in the middle of praying and he was praying out loud. So I just kind of paused. I didn't want to barge in on him or interrupt him. And I couldn't help but overhearing him a little bit. And it was, it was amazing to hear him. Just sim simple prayers of, of an elderly man talking to God. And he thanked God for saving his life in World War II. His little boy that was four or five years old and came back, he later died when he was very, very young. And he talked about wanting to see his son. He talked about his surviving children and wanting them to know God and know Christ. And the line I always remember, he's like, Help me do good stuff and not bad stuff. Amen. And I paused for a minute and then I walked in and said, Hey, Jason, how are you doing? Get the coffee, this and that. So after the New Orleans uh, handing off the flag incident, where we didn't actually hand off the flag, I believe it was the following summer, I get a random phone call. It's a voicemail from Forey. It said, Hey, why don't you and Valerie come over? Bring the kids. Bring your swim trunks. We're going to have a party and uh, it's on Tuesday afternoon at four. You know, who has a party at four in the afternoon on a Tuesday? Well, four he did. And he's like, I'm, I, I want to see you guys. I'm getting down to the end, you know, and, and uh, I want to see you. And then he just abruptly hung up the phone. 
And I wrote, he lived, he lived at a T intersection. I rolled up there on Tuesday afternoon at four. And I'm not kidding you. There was cars lining the street, both sides of the street, all three directions for two blocks at this guy's house. 90 some year old man. It was his kids, his grandkids, his great grandkids, all of his friends that he worked with at GM, all of his guys that were still alive from the, the, the veterans group. It was absolutely packed. You almost needed, uh, you know, traffic control there. I couldn't believe it. And I was, I was so happy and he was very happy. And one of the things he said, he was, we were sitting around talking. He's like, Hey, why does everybody wait for the funeral to do this? And I think he kind of knew that was in August and then he died January 1st. It was just so, so wonderful to see all those people turn out for him. It was just a real privilege to know, to know him. It's like him and all, all of his peer group were my heroes and getting to spend that time was valuable because, you know, when I met all those guys and, in the early 2000s, you know, 10 years later, they're, they're not around. We don't get to hear their voices anymore. We get to read it off a page. You know, he certainly wasn't a perfect guy or anything, but he was very, very genuine. And uh, he was my best friend. You know, although we were 50 some years separated, he was my best friend for a long time. And uh, I miss him. And you've been listening to Jason Porter talking about his friend, Fari Johnson. And Jason made an important decision that one day when he decided not to just say hello and move on to that old guy sitting there with a hat that indicated he fought in World War II, he got to know him. And we should all do that, by the way, with soldiers and just strangers. Because that person would end up being your best friend and you can end up learning a whole lot about life from them. And I keep thinking about those simple prayers of an elderly man. God, help me do good stuff and not bad stuff. And a special thanks to Shiloh Carroza, who is a Hillsdale graduate and does special work for us, bringing us stories like these, just beautiful stories. Corey Johnson's story, in a way, Jason Porter's too, here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, where we bring you stories about everything in life, and where we love to bring you stories from medical professionals who are on the front lines of keeping us all healthy, and who are with us in what are often the most trying moments of our lives. And today we bring you just such a story that we found on the terrific website LifeZet.com. I happen to write for them, too. It was written by a critical care physician named Jeremy Topin. And he graciously recorded it for us. Let's take a listen to Jeremy's story. The patient in front of me is trying to die. Elderly and frail, he's lying in the bed. His ribs outlined under skin that should be smooth. His temples are concave, where they should be flat. 
both an outward display of internal damage from his lung cancer. More striking than his cachexia are the strained muscles in his neck and his pursed lip breathing. He is working hard for each breath drowning in the air around him from his cancer or pneumonia or more likely both. It's my first night on call as a senior resident in the ICU. It is early in my second year of residency at the University of Chicago where I'm splitting my time between internal medicine and pediatrics. The intensive care unit is outside my comfort zone with its rapid pace and large volume of data to process and the complexities of multiple failing organ systems to manage. I'm both intimidated and inspired by those who seem to recognize patterns, synthesize information, and anticipate problems with ease. I want to be like them. I want to face my fears head on. I've chosen to be here to prove to myself that I can do this, that I'm capable of caring for the sickest of the sick. And now in the middle of the night, without a supporting daytime cast of residents and attendings, I'm anxious for my first test, and it happens to be the man in front of me, struggling to breathe. I want to be here. I want to be a critical care physician. I know what to do. A, B, C, airway, breathing, circulation. He has A in airway. He needs B, help with his breathing. His C, circulation, is fine. And his blood pressure, for the moment, is good. The team, two interns and me, prepare to intubate, placing a tube into his lungs to help him breathe. I've been reading for months about managing patients on a ventilator, the perils, the pitfalls. I review chapters and books written by my attendings who I will report to in the morning. I'm ready. Anesthesia comes and places the tube. I run fluids to prevent low blood pressure. I start medicine to sedate and calm my patient. I call out ventilator settings to help breathe for and give oxygen to my patient. It all goes wrong. His blood pressure drops dangerously low. He's thrashing around in the bed, working even harder than before. Alarms on the ventilator are beeping. His oxygen levels are now critically low. He needs more sedation to calm him, but that will make his already low blood pressure worse. He needs medicine to help support his failing circulation, but it requires a special IV, a central line in his neck or groin. I have placed a few but not in critical situations, much less in a patient thrashing about all over the bed. I tried different settings on the ventilator. Settings for pneumonia with high oxygen and more pressure. Settings for COPD with quicker but smaller breaths. All to no avail. He is not following the books I have read nor any pattern I recognize. He's gone from bad to worse and now is close to death. I breathe. All eyes are on me. The nurses, the respiratory therapists, the interns are all looking to me, the senior resident, to take charge and help this patient. But the puzzle of my patient's physiology is beyond my recognition. I don't 
want to be here. I don't know what to do. I'm failing. But more importantly, my patient is dying. Call a code, I say. The nurses look puzzled, but he's not coding. His heart hasn't stopped. He's about to. Call it. I need more help. I need more people here. Dr. Cart, ICU. Dr. Cart, ICU echoes overhead, alerting all those on call scattered throughout the hospital that there is a code or an arrest. They're to stop what they're doing to come to assist when that hospital-wide alarm is sent out. But when they enter the ICU, breathless from their sprint, they do not find a patient without a pulse, but instead a senior resident who is failing in his responsibility to help his patient. I feel shame, inadequate, an imposter. Worst of all, I am a danger to my patient. There is now a larger group of residents, some more senior, others the same level of training as me. I quickly explain the situation, and after a few questions, two of them look at each other with recognition of the pattern that has eluded me. Acute right heart failure prompted by positive pressure from the ventilator. The right ventricle is struggling to pump blood to the lungs. Usually our focus is on the left ventricle pumping blood to the body. Difficult to treat when recognized, impossible if not appreciated. One resident deftly places that IV in his neck. The other goes to work on the ventilator, modifying the settings, and 30 minutes later, my patient is stable at least for the next few hours, through no help of my own. The three of us debrief a bit and talk about a game plan moving forward before I call and update the attending at home. They go back to their patients, leaving me alone with my team and my thoughts. The patients in the ICU make it through the rest of the night unscathed, unlike my psyche. I am humbled by what I need to learn and shaken by how my deficiencies almost led to a death. My patient's life now on a more stable course, I find my own career path in jeopardy. With a bit more time separating me from the event, I start to process the evening. My colleagues who came to my rescue did not judge me. They came to help a co-resident and patient in need. The shame or judgment I felt was my own and my own to bear. Today, I appreciate even more the culture and learning environment at the University of Chicago, where cooperation trumps ego and pride in an environment that encourages resident autonomy. Asking for help is not a sign of weakness. What could have led to an abandonment of a life goal instead became a building block for future learning. It has been 17 years since my first night as a senior resident in the ICU. 12 of those have been as an adult pulmonary and critical care doctor working with a group of physicians that practice with the same philosophy. That recognizing one's limits is an important part of being a doctor. There is no sin in having deficits, but there is in failing to acknowledge and learn from them. I learned more that night than the pattern of acute right heart failure. I took a big step to being a lifelong learner.
And what a great piece. And thank you, Dr. Topin. And my goodness, he was, he was recalling that incident as if it happened yesterday. And it's something we've all experienced in some way, shape, or form. It's how we learn, folks. And asking for help is not a weakness. Dr. Jeremy Topin's story, here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and now it's time for our rule of law series where we tell stories about what happens when the rule of law is present or absent in our lives and our own Alex Cortez brings us this latest edition the person you're about to hear from is a former prosecutor who now writes about the law anonymously from the pseudonym of Adam Mill. Today, Adam's telling us the story of law enforcement's use of confidential human informants, where they often take people who've committed crimes, let them off the hook for them, and even allow them to commit more crimes because they're helping the local police and FBI spy on and convict people who are committing even larger crimes. I was in charge of all of the non-victim crimes that transpired in the county when there was a crime. Uh, The police would write up the report, they would give it to our office, the office would give it to me to prosecute. And there was this detective that I knew about by reputation, but I never saw him. But he did come into my office one day, and he asked me to drop this case against this defendant, this female defendant. And I asked him, well, why, why would I do that? We have a solid case, it's a felony case, this is a property crime. She had been basically running a check scam to try and get money for drugs, and it was an important prosecution. And he said, well, she's my CI. CI is short for confidential informant. People use the term confidential informant, snitch, confidential human source, source, all those mean the same thing. So I said, well, what, is she making a case? Uh, You know, if I drop one felony that you're telling me there's a bigger fish out there. And he hemmed and hawed about it, and I knew that it wasn't true. I had been there for over a year, and I'd signed practically every single felony complaint prosecution that had come through that didn't involve a victim crime, all the drug cases, all the property crime cases, and I'd never endorsed him as a witness. He had these confidential inform- this confidential informant. He had lots of confidential informants. They all tended to be attractive females, but they never produced cases. So that stuck in my head. Why would a police officer or any member of law enforcement have confidential informants? Why would they have these snitches but never build cases out of them? You know, when I mentioned something, I was relatively new at the time. I'd only been there for about a year. And when I mentioned something to one of the support staff, she rolled her eyes and said, well, you know, he's, you know, I mean, there was a lot of dark speculation about what he was really doing. I can't prove any of it, but he did bring in a case a month or two later that was completely unrelated, and it was a nonsense case. He didn't have clear evidence to point to any particular defendants. 
And I remember just thinking to myself, well, this this guy probably hasn't led on a case in a very long time. So he, he must have been like this for years. And no one did anything about it or reviewed this situation? No, he was there years after I left. I think he ran for sheriff in that in that jurisdiction at one point in time. So you remember the Whitey Bulger story. There was a, a movie called Black Mass that came out a while ago about this person who was a, an FBI confidential informant for years, for, for decades. And what happened was the relationship inverted, so it was the tail wagging the dog. The FBI began working for this guy, Whitey Bulger, and he supposedly was giving them information, but it was really going the other way around. They were giving him information, and he ascended the pecking order in Boston until he became the top of the heap. He was the most important criminal figure in Boston for years. And so the question arose, well, what, what is the FBI, why is the FBI keeping the most important criminal in Boston as a confidential informant? There's no bigger fish to go for, but the relationship continued. And the story of Whitey Bulger isn't a lonely Looney Tunes example. Just wait until you meet Katrina Loon. This is a woman who the FBI recruited as a as a spy. She, they, they thought they turned her as a spy. She was a spy for China a couple of decades ago. When she was caught, she was approached by FBI agents and she agreed to start spying for America. And over the course of 18 years, the FBI paid her $1.7 million to spy for the FBI. But this woman, Katrina Lung, she inverted the relationship and she actually seduced not one but two of her FBI handlers into sexual relationships. And the Office of Inspector General later on came through and they found that she had actually passed information back to the People's Republic of China involving ongoing FBI operations and investigations, and she passed them classified information, classified documents through these 18 years. But the relationship continued in spite of the fact that the FBI caught her repeatedly sharing this information with the People's Republic of China. They just couldn't seem to terminate this relationship. If you're asking me to speculate, I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that the FBI culture is to offer some deference to the agent that is handling the case. In a lot of cases, that's probably the best way to run things. But if the handler is sleeping with the confidential human source, which happened not just once but twice with this individual, you know, his judgment is not very is not very good. And so he must have sold it to his superiors that notwithstanding what she was caught doing, she was still giving them information that was more valuable than the cost of what she was giving to the Chinese. So you can ask the question, you know, suppose if you headed a criminal organization and you needed protection from prosecution, the dramatic series Ozark dabbled in this plot line in the third season, you know, bad actors like these, they become confidential informants and they have found ways to wag the dog, to actually use their relationship to accomplish these ends. It's like the story about the frog being in the, the water that, where the heat gets turned up slowly. These relationships that last for five years, I mean, sometimes these FBI agents would have these confidential informants over to their houses for dinner. They would form relationships with them. The FBI agents would find little ways to help the confidential informant out of small jams or small problems and give them advice. And they'd start to become friends and in some cases they became lovers and loyalties would arise that would cloud the overall objective uh, that's happened over and over again 
And the FBI is aware of this problem. And they've done these reforms and created these procedures so that it's not just one FBI agent looking at or dealing with the confidential informant, that it gets reviewed at the field office level and then it gets reviewed at the headquarters level. Those safeguards have just been allowed to just languish in atrophy to where it's hard to believe they're effective anymore. The OIG, Office of Inspector General for the Department of Justice, they did a really shocking report about the FBI's confidential human source program. Beginning in February 2010, the FBI had 213 FBI headquarters personnel dedicated to validating whether these confidential human source relationships were actually benefiting the government or were they something else. Well, as of March 2019, that office that had 213 FBI personnel dedicated to the validation process, that dried up to the point where they only had 29 personnel. That's an 86% decrease in FBI headquarters personnel that were dedicated to review these relationships. I don't think the DOJ is, is hurting for money. I don't think the FBI is hurting for money. It's, it's all priorities. Look, the, the intelligence community as a whole, their, their budget has increased something like from the tune of $65 billion to $80 billion in just the last four years. So the OIG found that there was a huge backlog in these relationships. Many of them have never been reviewed. When these confidential human source relationships are submitted for review, a third of them require intervention by senior management. And a couple of examples that they gave, one of them was a convicted sex offender that they were using for a confidential human source. And the FBI found him so repugnant that after the oversight was exercised, they they terminated the relationship immediately. There are numerous examples of FBI agents receiving money from their confidential informants. That should never happen. There's no reason that an FBI agent should personally be receiving money from their confidential human source. Uh, What's of even greater concern is that many of these relationships have lasted for a very long time. You know, the normal statute of limitations for a criminal case is somewhere in the neighborhood of five or six years, depending on the crime, depending on the jurisdiction. So if you're a law enforcement agency and you're using one of these confidential human sources, you ought to be able to wrap it up and use the person as a witness or use, you know, make some kind of bust and bring a case within that period of time. But one of the things that the FBI OIG was very concerned about was that these relationships just continue to drag on and on and on long past five years. Nearly half of the FBI's long-term relationships have never been reviewed, and something like a third of all the confidential human source relationships are long-term. From a rule of law point of view, these confidential human source relationships are a concern because typically the FBI is kind of sheltering these criminals from the consequences of their illegal actions because, in theory, they're getting information that will justify that indulgence because they'll get an even bigger bust down the road and there'll be an even greater benefit to the rule of law by doing that. But in practice, when that doesn't happen, the FBI is just protecting criminals. And you've been listening to Adam Mill. And by the way, that's the pen name of a former prosecutor who is speaking anonymously. And the CIs and the use of them in the system is a disturbing one to me. And you're talking about the FBI, which is like the elite 
of the elite of law enforcement. And imagine what's happening with CIs and city and local police departments and the like. There's just so much room for the corruption of the pursuit of truth and in the end, justice. And whoever he is, we understand why doing this anonymously is probably in everyone's best interest. Adam Mill's story here on Our American Stories. American stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And now we continue with our Opportunity America series that's sponsored by Coke Industries, which employs some 67,000 Americans. Georgia Pacific, a Coke company, makes many of the paper products we use every day, from tissue and toilet paper the paper towels, and more. And Alex Cortez now brings us the story of one of Georgia Pacific's employees, Vic Billingsley, who lives in Hattiesburg, in our own home state of Mississippi. In 1998, Vic Billingsley was diagnosed with non-alcoholic cirrhosis of the liver, although Vic was able to live a pretty healthy normal life for years. It wasn't until 2007, nine whole years later, that his doctor said... You need a transplant. Kind of all of these things going through my mind as to how do I escape this? There's no, there's no exit door. This is what the cards I've been dealt. I got into a scenario to where your mind is is moving at a hyper speed, and it's it's one of those things that's just absolutely ever present. You you can't escape it. I would go to sleep at night only after being just totally exhausted because I couldn't turn it off. You know, it was, it, was, it was so pressing on me. And I would finally fall asleep after just being totally exhausted and would go through the experience to where, you know, I'd only sleep probably maybe a couple hours at a time. And when I'd wake up, I'd go through this thing to where I'd go, wow, that was, that was, a, that was a terrible dream. That was, that was a bad dream. And then the realization would hit, you know, you'd get that gut punch of it wasn't a dream. You know, this is, this is your reality. And that replayed itself a whole bunch of times. And then came the part to where you've, you've got to be admitted into the hospital to do the testing, to see where you fall as a candidate for a transplant because just because you need one is not necessarily a guarantee that you're going to get one. So then that's when the waiting game began. I constantly had my cell phone with me, you know, everywhere I went. 
Anytime the phone rang, you know, the first thing you did was flip it over and look at the caller ID. And there again, every time it rang, you're, you're sitting there wondering if this is the time that you're gonna get that call. The call came in on a Sunday morning. Actually, it was a, about 6, 6.30 in the morning. Catherine picked up the phone and kind of looks at the caller ID and she, she asked me, she said, who is, who is, it says Sanders Foreman. And I came wide awake because that was the transplant surgeon at Tulane. So I answered the phone and he says, this is Vic, this is Dr. Foreman. I just want to let you know we have a liver available, but I want to talk to you about it. What we, the situation we have is there's a five and a half month old little girl in Miami, Florida that is also in need of a transplant, but she only needs a certain part of it. And we can have the remainder of it if you elect to accept this. He said, we hadn't, we hadn't really done this before here, but we think we can handle it. He said, the only problem will be where we uh, face the liver, which means where they, where they make that separation cut, that when we put it back into you, we may have some bleeding issues, and that's a concern, but we but we feel confident we can handle it. Well, uh, I was full awake and trying to process what he's telling me, and I asked the question. I said, "Well, can I can I can I think about it?" And his response was, "I'll call you back in four minutes." because there's also a time consideration when they have these organs available. So I wanted to talk to my brother and my, my sister, her being a nurse practitioner, him being a physician, and, and kind of get their opinion on it. So I got them on the phone, my brother's in Florida and my sister's local, and we started discussing it, and then we also got Dr. Florman on the phone and started kind of discussing it and talking about it, all the different ramifications and such as that. And my, my sister finally said, well, the good Lord's got us to this point. You know, we just have to, that's where we need to place our trust. And I say, we go for it. And so the decision was made that, okay, we'll go for it. You know, the reality kind of hit real hard at that time that this is this is actually going to happen now. You know, it's like it's like being on a roller coaster ride, you can't get off in the middle. You got to ride it to the end. Well, I had worried and and fretted so much through the whole experience. And at the time that I got that call, I I was of the 100% thought that I was going to go down there and I was not going to come back. I just, I did not believe that I was going to survive the operation. And so what that brought onto the plate was that morning, I honestly thought I was looking at my kids for the last time. Mm. 
kind of coming back. And you're listening to Vic Billingsley, his story of one of the big moments of his life, the turning point in his life, being told there was a liver available, but this operation was going to be difficult. He assumed the worst, looking at his kids, what he thought would be for sure in his own mind the last time. And by the way, Vic found comfort in his co-workers at Georgia Pacific who offered him a vacation time, organized fundraisers for him, and prayed with him. When we come back, more of this remarkable story, our Opportunity America series with Coke Industries continues here on Our American Story. stories and Vic Billingsley's story and when we last left off Vic was certain that he'd die in this operation of a lifetime he just didn't see any hope by the way he'd lost his dad to liver cancer as well and he was about to share a liver with a five-month-old baby named Kara but let's go back to the story because well he was certain he was never going to see his kids again uh, I wound up uh on my kitchen floor, on my hands and knees, and I was absolutely sobbing. And I think I had scared my children quite quite a bit. Here's Vic's daughter, Haley. So I was six years old, and I had no clue that my father was sick, not even a hint. Every time he had a doctor's appointment, he would, you know, not make a big deal about it. He'd say, oh, you're going to go stay with your family friend this week, or you're going to go stay with your friend from school this week, and just kind of played it off like I just needed to be babysat because they were doing something. But turns out all of those times he dropped me off, they were going to hospitals and meeting with doctors and trying to figure out a game plan for his liver transplant. And dad just kind of had this look on his face, like something wasn't right, but you couldn't tell what it was, like something was out of place. I just remember looking at him and thinking, like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> and he just kept looking at us and staring at us, and he watched us for a good bit of time, and then he just starts crying out of nowhere and I've never seen my father cry like not never before never after my dad was on his hands and knees crying on the kitchen floor because he thought he was gonna die he thought he was gonna leave us forever and he would never see his children again and me being clueless and innocent and just trying to allay a situation that was very stressful um, I was sitting in a chair above my father while he was on his hands and knees, and I was just petting his head saying, it's okay, Daddy, it's okay. I don't know what's going on, but you'll be okay. There I am on my hands and knees, and, and she, she kind of hugged my head and started patting me and, you know, saying, it'll be all right. 
you know, she, she didn't really know what was going on, but uh, she was trying to comfort me. She didn't know what was happening, but she was trying to help me out. And that memory just sticks out to me. So I finally, finally composed myself enough to get up and uh, I didn't want to let go of them, but had to. And even though he was crying, he didn't tell me why. I just got dropped off at a family member's house to be babysat for a week and nobody told me what was going on. Nobody updated me, nothing. We didn't clue them up a lot about this as the children. We didn't sit them down and say, hey, this is what, this is what we're going through. We kind of kept them in the dark, you know. Whether that was a good decision or a, a bad decision, I don't know. It was just what the right decision felt at that time, that if they had to worry about what I was going through, that it would it'd be very hard for them to to go through and we didn't know what their level of understanding, we didn't want to scare them to death. So that was kind of where our decision in not really telling them what was going on came from. So we left and started heading toward New Orleans. The whole time I'm thinking, if I come back to Hattiesburg, it's gonna be in a, a long car with curtains on the side. And finally make it to the floor where things start happening. So they start prepping me and, you know, cause they're still waiting. The liver is from the donor is over in Baton Rouge. So they're having to take care of getting that organ and splitting it and then making the transport over to New Orleans and then to Miami for Cara. Dr. Foreman walks in and basically says, we're gonna get you through this, he said, but there's a few other things you need to know if we go into this and we open you up. He said, if I, if I find any evidence of cancer outside the liver, then we're gonna sew you back up and we're not gonna do the transplant. We're gonna offer that up to somebody else. That was kind of a new twist to it too. I didn't, I didn't understand, you know, I, I understood what he was saying, but I didn't, I hadn't had previous knowledge of that. So had he opened me up and there had been something else, then I'd probably been close to the end of the trail. Had carried pictures of, of the kids, of Jacob, Noah, and Haley with me down there. I told the nurse, I said, I want that to go in the OR with me. Um, she wrapped it up in a sterile bag or whatever, put it on the bed with me. And I remember going into the operating suite and <laughs> felt like I was going into a freezer. It was very cold in there and they slid over to a stainless steel table and got the happy juice and was kind of out of it for a while. 
I woke up and nobody was there and I'm wondering what's going on. I've got a pretty good bit of cutting on my abdomen and a lot of discomfort, but that discomfort is very much overshadowed by the fact that I'm still alive. Yeah, I hurt, but even hurt can be an enjoyable experience when, when you're able to hurt, as opposed to you don't have to worry about hurting anymore. And little Kara also survived the transplant. And she was such a, a small, delicate child. And to, to sit there and think that she had gone through the same thing that I'd gone through. And there's some stark differences there. First off, I went in with knowledge. I went in knowing, well, I mean, as much knowledge as, as could be given to me why the wherefores whereas this small beautiful baby she didn't know why she was experiencing all of this you know that's that's kind of what's playing in my mind is is she's going through all of this this pain discomfort and nobody can tell her or explain to her why she's just having to go through it on her own to a certain degree and then at the same time coupled with that it was a totally different perspective when I looked at Keisha and Kurt to imagine what they as parents were going through. When you're sitting there and, and you're virtually helpless to do anything for your child, you know, I'm sure they, they suffered tremendously from having to watch this occur and Mine from the whole other flip side of the perspective of where I felt like I was going to leave children behind. To me, that's a huge dynamic. And the thought goes then to, for she and I to live, somebody else had to perish. But through their gift, look what they've done. This, this beautiful child was able to continue living. I was able to continue being a parent. And you're listening to Vic Billingsley. And my goodness, what empathy he has and should have. And I keep picturing the father on his hands and knees crying and the baby girl consoling her dad, not knowing why, because he didn't tell her. And I think a lot of us would tell and a lot of us wouldn't. And that's a individual parent's decision. If I had a really young kid, I wouldn't tell because then they just worry like crazy. And when we come back, we'll continue with a compelling and beautiful story of Vic Billingsley, part of our Opportunity America series brought to us by the great folks at Coke Industries, and you can learn more about their incredible work at cokeind.com. That's K-O-C-H-I-N-D.com. This is Our American Story.
And we're back with Our American Stories and Vic Billingsley's story of successfully receiving a liver transplant, a topic that his daughter Haley decided to write about in an essay competition for college scholarships that her dad's company, Georgia Pacific, offered and led to more than a scholarship. Here's Haley reading a portion of her essay. At a time when the world seemed gigantic and my sole worry was whether I would get to play with toys or watch TV after a long day of school, agony slipped into my life in an unexpected way. March 2007 was a month of worry, confusion, and doubt. My father seemed invincible to me. He was the strongest man I knew, and yet he was dying? As the innocently clueless six-year-old I was, I lived my life imagining my father as an infallible hero that could do anything, never imagining that in less than a week he would be fighting for his life on an operating table. My father was incredibly brave throughout this process. He was still the man walking up and down the sidelines at my soccer game, and he was still the one picking me up every time I fell. All this time, my father remained calm and steady in the most turbulent times of his life. Abruptly discovering that my father was previously sick and recovering from a major surgery changed my whole viewpoint on life and the human condition. I went from believing that death and agony only existed in storybooks to contemplating the intimate reality of the silent suffering of my valiant father. I could no longer imagine that my father was invincible and I began to understand the fragility of life. I learned that people are human, no matter how strong they may seem, and that you cannot rely on the promise that they will be here tomorrow. Nearly losing my father taught me to love deeper and live more honestly, because life happens too fast to delay speaking the truth. I have become more compassionate to the sufferings of others, and I am immeasurably thankful to still have my dad today. With his example, I live my life with faith and confidence that storms will come and I can face them no matter the outcome. But the outcome of this essay was winning. I was shocked. I just thought it was going to be one of those things where, you know, kind of like buying a raffle ticket, something you do and you don't ever really hear the results and it's something that someone else wins but you don't win. You just do it to support a cause or to say that you tried. There was a scholarship um, luncheon from the Georgia Pacific Scholarship at my dad's branch. And someone in his office pulled me aside and said, Haley, we have a surprise for your dad. We'd love to, we'd love your participation in it. And I said, of course, anything to pull something over my dad. I love messing with my dad. Good or bad, <laughs> I love messing with him. And so she told me that they were trying to get in contact with Kara and schedule something to where she could meet my father. And when she told me that, I was completely shocked. I said, oh my gosh, that would be incredible. I freaked out a little bit, but it was, it was hard to keep a secret because it's something that would make my dad so happy if he knew that was happening. But I couldn't ruin the surprise. And then a few weeks later, Bill Worley, the GP, calls me and says, hey, uh, I was reading through these essays, and the one your daughter wrote was pretty interesting, and 
kind of wanted to learn a little bit more about it. And he thought it was enough to do a story on. And Joy Light and I can come down to Hattiesburg and talk with you and Haley and set it up for Georgia Pacific to film for them. So, you know, we'd be talking about filming and we would get in arguments about how much food we needed for the day. And it was so hard not to just say, Dad, Cara's coming, we need food for her and her family. <laughs> and then that day, I remember it was, you know, we set it up like a, a TV set where everything behind the scenes is quiet. And making a noise is just disruptive and not needed. Bill said, well, let's take a break for a minute. So we, we were taking a break and then we started going back and Haley said, well, I, I need to run out to the to the car to get something. And I said, well, okay, you know. And she didn't want to have to step through all of the stuff that they had out there for the, the lighting and all of that. She wanted to go through the back gate. It's kind of a big, tall wooden gate. And I'd tried to go through there the day before and it was kind of difficult. So I said, no, don't go through there. Go, go, go through the front. And she was kind of... I, I didn't know why she wanted to go through the back. So she said, okay, she, she went out the front or whatever. And I remember meeting Kara and meeting her parents and welcoming them and just embracing them fully and just having my own private moment with them to just embrace them and say, it's been a long time coming. And I'm so sad it's been 12 years and we just, we're just now meeting. And so I had that little moment with them and then I walked them through the back gate and we went up the back porch and my dad was facing the porch door. And so when I opened the door, that door makes a lot of noise. And I remember my dad looking at me in the eyes, kind of with this look of, have you lost your mind? You know we're supposed to be quiet. Why are you making all that noise? The door's opening up, and I'm thinking, why is Haley coming back through that way? Well, she walks through, and then... <laughs> My dad's just completely confused, and I move out of the doorway. Then Carl walks out, and I'm just totally astonished that, because I'm sitting there with my eyes seeing her, but my mind can't fathom that, they're, that what I'm seeing is real. And my dad's look shifts from confusion and annoyance to just utter shock and awe and amazement. You know, she walks up and I, and I instant recognition because I've seen her so much on Facebook and, and then Kurt and Keisha walk in and, and I am just totally blown away by seeing them there. And and still, living that moment, I just was one I could not believe. And I, I'm, and everybody's kind of smiling with this knowing smile. And I realized I had been sandbagged, that, that I was the only one that didn't have any knowledge about it. And, you know, getting to, to finally give Cara a hug and Keisha and Kurt to finally see them and meet them it was just it was just a an awesome experience and it just felt right 
we're, we're, we're bound together. We, we have a bond. Uh, it, it sounds a little, maybe sounds a little funny, but I do feel a very strong bond with her. And it's, it's, it's difficult to explain, but we have a tie that kind of brings us together in a, in a fashion that I don't know of any other people that are, that are kind of tied together like she and I are, but it's, it's unique and it's a blessing. It is unique and a blessing and beautiful. And what a story, Vic Billingsley's family story, his own personal story. As Vic told us, he and Kara seem very different on the outside. He's an old white guy, and she's a young black lady. But on the inside, they share a liver and a common belief that they're children of God. And that stuff really matters. Unlike the rest of the media that profits off division, we bring you stories like this of Americans coming together in beautiful ways, and we do it each and every day, folks. Our Opportunity America series, sponsored by Coke Industries. Learn more about their work and incredible employees like Vic Billingsley at cokeind.com. That's K-O-C-H-I-N-D.com. And by the way, that letter of his daughter's, there are two kinds of fathers, folks. A father who gets a letter like that and a father that doesn't. Vic Billingsley's story here on Our American Stories. And we continue with Our American Stories. And now we bring you the story of Edie Hand, a friend of ours whose life, well, it was so compelling, it was so interesting that we wanted to bring it to you. It's a life shaped by both a lot of love, but as you're about to hear, a whole lot of loss. Here's Edie. It was a setting in northwest Alabama, just like in a novel. A sister's love for these three young boys, David, Terry, and Philip. Every afternoon after school, we would get off our school bus, run inside and get us a doodad cookie and head to the barn. I would saddle up my horse. My horse was named Trigger. And I named it Trigger because of Roy Rogers and Dale Evans. David would saddle up his horse named Spotted Clown because he loved the Long Ranger and Tonto. And then Philip, now he saddled up his horse. He had a little Shetland pony, and he named his horse Polly because he was in love with our Avon lady. And then there was Terry. He was just too small to have his own horse, so I would throw him on the back with me. We would head to the Indian mounds, and on our property we had about 40 acres, and we would get to the top of the mounds, and it was a wonderful place to lie down, let the horses wander around, and we would start talking about our dreams. Now, David, he was going to be a race car driver. He was a great talker, and he was really funny. He would turn his hat around backwards and 
He would get his pocket knife out and start cutting holes in his hat all the time, making them bigger and pull his curls through it. And he would pick up a pine cone and start saying, oh, here comes Ruth Magoo down the road. She has one kid. No, I believe there's four, maybe five. Ruth had rather large arms, and she had one hanging out the side of the window, and she was smoking a cigar. So we just had a field day with Ruth Magoo. And then there was Philip. He was really kind of shy. He felt like he was, he just didn't know how to get involved with people, but he loved music. And my mother's brothers were singers and songwriters, and we come from the history of the the late Elvis Presley of that family on our grandmother's side. So he says, I think I'm just going to grow up and be a songwriter and maybe drink a little whiskey because that seems to get all the girls coming around. So we said, oh, well, whatever, you know, he was going to do. But I learned from him about seizing moments in life. And he was that way. He tried to seize moments if it was playing football If he were up to bat for a baseball game, he wanted to be the best he could be, always practicing to be the best and seize every moment of something that could be great, not good. And then there was Terry. I think I learned the most about life from him. Uh, He taught us about courage. He wanted to grow up and become an architect because our dad's dad was a builder. He built buildings and homes, and Terry said he was going to grow up and be a big architect. He wanted to build all kinds of skyscrapers, buildings. And we said, wow, we barely can say the word, but you're going to do this? Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was kind of cool to hear everybody share what they were going to do, and they would say, so, Edith, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to write about other people, and I'm going to be a movie star And they went, oh, sure. Well, we're going to visit you in your mansion one day, okay? And so we teased each other. And our mother, her name was Sue, but her mother had named her Ripple Sue. So we would call her Rip Dip, which she hated. So when we were on the Indian mounds, and Rip Dip would get really loud. But when she was about the fifth or sixth time, Edith, David, Terry, Philip, come home and eat. Well, we, I said, boys, let's get up. It's time to go home. Rip dips on our last screen, you know. So we would know to mount up, get those horses back to the barn to go have dinner. But it was a wonderful way of growing up in this simpler times. But I guess I just didn't realize that what was happening in my life and what I was learning from them, it was my only time that I was going to have with them because... They would die young. David died at the age of 19 in a car accident. I was a senior in college. I was devastated. At that particular time in my life, he was my best friend, and he was the most important man in my life. So it took me a year just to kind of get back into the groove of life. And he was the first one in our family to pass away. Ten years later, my brother Philip was killed in an automobile accident. I remember what a horrible time it was that 
my father called me and he said, I'm, your mother and I just can't go. Would you come and identify your brother? I just didn't realize how hard that would be. I drove to North Alabama and identified the body. It was just so hard seeing how life really was. One day you can be with someone and the next they're not a part of your life. You're washing their last load of clothes. Then I guess to me, the last one, the strongest one, Terry, they found he had an aneurysm in the middle of the brain. And Terry had brain surgery. And I'll never forget the courage that it took the night his neurosurgeon came out and said, I don't know if we can save him. I'm going to have to leave his head open. We're going to try to go back in one more time. Would you like to see him? I remember my mother was unconsolable, and my father was with her, and I went to be with him. It was like a war zone for me. I'd never seen anything quite like I saw in that room at the UAB hospital. I'd never seen that kind of pain before. His hands were strapped down, and I remember he said, you have to save me. You have to save me. And I I could not save him. And I stayed with him as long as I could, and I prayed. I tried to comfort him. There was no way to comfort him. I went outside, and I said, you have to do something for him, Doc. You have to do something. He said, I'm going to put him in a room. You can stay with him all night. I don't know that he'll make it, but we're going to try surgery again tomorrow. I remember I didn't think he would make it either, but he went into the surgery. They lost his hearing. He, he lost his taste. Several things weren't the same. They sent him home more of a broken man. Didn't think he would live very long. But Terry, watching him fight for life, taught me so much about courage, of how he wanted to live as best he could, that my father built a ramp in his sunken den, that he'd built his home with his own two hands on his land. He talked every day or listened to country music. Then he realized when he went back to the doctor that he was going to be losing his speech. I never saw someone with that much determination. He says, what can I do, Edith? So I, I fixed an A to Z sign for him and I said I'll point at these letters we'll make it work so that is the way we communicated and he said one day he said I am going to lose my voice would you promise me that when my time comes would you come and hold me and I want you to tell our story one day that the Blackburn boys that our life would be an encouragement to tell people it's important to be kind to one another, to enjoy the simpler things of life. It's not all about the money you can make, but it is what we do for one another and how we encourage one another. You know, and I am glad that God allowed me to be able, when I got the call, to come, and I held him in my arms. Now they're all buried under that big oak tree, and... And the loss of these three young boys took me a long time. But I know this, 
if we all look for it, no matter what season of life we're in, or what hardship we face, or heartbreak, that there is something beautiful to come out of it if we look for that. And that has been my saving grace. And you just heard Edie Hand's story. There's not a dry eye in our room. And what a story about remembrance, about family. Her brothers, she buried them all. And all too young. David, 19, in a car accident. It took her a year to get over that. Ten years later, Philip, another car accident. The parents couldn't even go and ID the body. Edie had to do that. And then watching her brother struggle after an aneurysm, learning about courage, how he fought for life, taught me about life, she said about her brother Terry. And he also said, tell our story one day. And so Edie just did. Be kind to one another. Enjoy life. It's not all about the money. And the three brothers, all those three brothers and sister who rode horses together on those 40 acres, the three boys are buried under an oak tree. What a beautiful story. What a sad story. Edie Hand's story here on Our American Stories.